the screen. Peter was astonished at what he had just heard. Jesus was saying things that just did not match with Peter's understanding of, of the Scriptures. He knew that the Messiah was going to do certain things, and what Jesus was saying was not what Peter knew the Messiah would do. And, and maybe, maybe Jesus just didn't understand the prophecies. Uh, he was saying that, um, well, basically he was saying that he was going to give up, that, that he wasn't going to step into his role as the Messiah. And uh, in fact, what he said is that they were going to go to Jerusalem sometime soon, and then he would be persecuted, and, and, and um, he would suffer terribly by the priests and the scribes, and then he would be killed. So Peter took it upon himself to correct the Lord's misunderstanding. And turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll read it together. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22. We're going to be in Matthew 16 and 17 and chapter 20. So just kind of start with 16, and we'll, we'll go from there. Peter, he... Uh, took Jesus aside, and he began to rebuke him, and he said, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. You're not going to suffer and die. You're the Messiah. Now, for Peter, this was a faith statement. Unfortunately, it was a, a faith statement in complete ignorance. He didn't understand the prophecies, and Jesus did. And, and so Jesus turned to him because what, what Peter saw as faith, Jesus knew to be the voice of Satan himself to try to discourage him to try to change his direction and keep him from the deep sacrifice he knew he had to, to do. And so he says in verse 23, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of who? Men. That's, his, that's man's ideas, Peter. You don't understand what God's plan really is. I'm sure Peter's head was just spinning with what he had just heard. Get behind me, Satan. He just... He was just uplifting Jesus and reminding him that he's the Messiah, and now he's being accused of being the devil. That's hard. And, and, and he's processing this, and not very well. It, it, he's just confused. What he had missed in Jesus' statement, go back to verse 21, is that Jesus didn't just predict his death and burial, but he also predicted his resurrection. Let's read it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the, the thing that he described, and somehow killed was the only thing Peter seemed to recognize. Now, this is the first of three predictions that Jesus makes about his death and burial and resurrection. This particular one happened right after he had fed a great multitude. And you might remember at one of those occasions, the people were like, hey, let's make you our king. And so this idea is in the back of the disciples' minds. This is a, a man who can do powerful things. He's going to be the Messiah king. Well, after another experience, he said the same thing. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured into his glorious form, and they were amazed. They wanted to build um, an altar and stuff. And, and Jesus, shortly after that, in Matthew chapter 17, also in verse 22, Matthew 17, 22, he says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. What are you talking about? We just saw you transfigured. Can you imagine what's going on in Peter's mind? It's like this huge disconnect. All of his culture, all of his theology, all of his training had led him to believe a certain thing about the Messiah. And every time Jesus seems to be moving in that direction, Jesus says, hold on, I'm actually not doing what you think I'm doing. A little while later, on his way to Jerusalem to participate in the Passover, the last Passover that the world would ever need, Jesus took the disciples aside and made his third prediction. Now, this was prior to something that would make them think that he was king. Uh, he was just about to do something that would trigger all these alarm bells in their heads saying, yes, it's happening, prophecy is being fulfilled. And he says this to preempt that. Chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Galileans or to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. 
Now, shortly after giving this third statement about his death and resurrection, the mother of James and John comes to Jesus, and it's like they, they don't quite understand. Listen to this in Matthew 20, verse 21. Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She's still thinking that he's going to be a king. James and John still thinking he's going to be a king. And the disconnect between this perception of how they would be saved by the Messiah, this Messiah king, and the way that it was actually going to happen was so profound that even though Jesus describes it in clarity on these three separate occasions, the disciples just didn't get it. They were planning on Jesus wearing a crown of gold and directing earthly armies, and Jesus was planning on wearing a crown of thorns and being abandoned by everybody who claimed to be his follower. When Jesus asked the disciples to get the foal of a donkey and bring it to him to, to ride into Jerusalem on, the alarm bells start going off again. This is how kings do it. And then as he's riding in on this foal of a donkey, the, the crowds are coming together and they're singing Hosanna to the son of David. And, and you know what that's saying in their minds? Messiah, the son of David, the king, the rightful heir, he's going he's gonna to take over and he's going to raise an army. Peter and James and John and all the rest were already making plans for their role in this new government. Do you remember when you bought a house? Maybe if you've bought a house at some point, you know what I'm talking about. The time comes you make an offer and the person who's selling the house accepts the offer, right? You haven't done the inspection yet. Uh, it's not been appraised. Money hasn't exchanged hands, and yet you're already, especially if you're a woman, you're already like measuring the rooms and thinking about the arrangements and the colors, right? right? This is what the disciples are doing. It hasn't happened yet. There is no throne uh, uh, that Jesus is sitting on. There's no government that he's the head of, and yet they're, they're measuring their office space and, and, and uh, making sure that they've got the appropriate garments or that they're going to get the appropriate garments for the station that they're expecting to be in. All that afternoon, the disciples were talking excitedly among themselves as they prepare the room that Jesus had told them to for the, the Last Supper. They don't know it's going to be the Last Supper. They think it's just the first of many, but, but it's the Last Supper that they have with their Lord, the last Passover. And as they talked with certainty, they were sure that Jesus was going to rise up as king this weekend. And they set the table and they all gathered together and, and they didn't even pay much attention to Jesus as he was there among them. They're just in their little groups talking and arguing and quibbling about who's going to do what and, and, and all their, their roles and what. And then, and then Jesus changes direction. He stops, gets up from the table and he takes off his outer robe and, and goes and, and gets a towel and wraps it around his waist, and he gets a basin of water, and he starts to wash the feet of each of the disciples. You can find this in John chapter 13. Let's read that together. John chapter 13, verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And, and the disciples, as he did this, were astonished. They stopped talking. All the conversations just end, and they, they, they're confused. Because why would Jesus, who is about to be the king of Israel and lead armies to conquer their, their enemies, why would he do the job of a servant? Why would he humble himself to this role? And it was confusing to them. They still weren't grasping that Jesus' model of salvation, the way he was going to save them, was completely different than they could imagine. Peter echoes his rebuke from Matthew 16 in his statement to Jesus in verse 6 of John 13. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, the rebuke, you can hear it there. Like, no, this isn't what kings do. Jesus answered him, what I, am going, what I am doing you do not understand now. Oh boy, he did not. But afterwards you will understand. That's the key. 
afterwards. There's going to be a point. You get it. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And he's saying this in faith, right? You are the king. But Jesus says to him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter was so confused and maybe even a little frustrated that Jesus wasn't falling into line. And uh, he didn't want Jesus to act like this humble servant. He wanted him to take his place as the king. And now Jesus is kneeling before him, uh, uh, taking his sandals off. And maybe just maybe all those bad things that Jesus predicted about his death were going to come to pass. But Peter didn't want it to be that way. Peter wanted the kingdom of, of God to be the one that conquered nations. Peter wanted the Lord of the earth to rise up and be glorified. What Peter didn't understand is that the kingdom that Jesus wanted to conquer was the hearts of the people of the nations. And, and the way that he was going to rise up was to be on a tree and to be crucified. As soon as Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me, Peter quickly, he quickly changed tack because it wasn't that he didn't want Jesus to, to be part of his life, it's that he didn't want Jesus to be humbled. He wanted him to do his work as a Messiah. And so as soon as he, he heard that you can't be part of me if you don't do this ceremony, he says, well, then wash all of me. I, I really want you to be my king. Jesus says, oh, no, you don't need all of you washed. You're clean. Well, except for one of you. You just need your feet washed. Hmm. A little later that night, Jesus told the disciples that he had given them an example that they should do the same thing. His example of humble service is something that the church has participated in ever since. We call it the ordinance of humility. Today, we're going to do something a little different than we normally do. We're going to tell the whole story of that weekend in brief summary of it, uh, but we're going to participate with the story as it happens. So here, we've just seen Jesus do the foot washing ceremony, and I'd like us to participate in that. And when the service is done, come back, sit here quietly, and uh, the elders and deacons and deaconesses will come forward. We'll do the communion service, and then we'll finish the story with the resurrection. But it's going to be a bit participatory this morning. This foot washing service, we need to remember that this symbol, the, the washing of the feet is a symbol of cleansing, the cleansing that Jesus' blood supplies, the cleansing of the Holy Spirit washing our hearts clean. And it's something that we need because we commit sin. And God says to confess your sin, and he will forgive and cleanse. And this, what we're doing, is a faith ceremony. We know that Jesus has cleansed us. The Spirit has cleansed us from our sin when we confess it. But, but we do this to remind ourselves, a physical reminder, that this is trustworthy, that his promise is true, that we are cleaned. But we also do it for another reason. Just like the disciples there that night, we can get into our own selfish patterns and, and what God invites us to do in this is to serve each other. And so as we serve each other and wash each other's feet, it's a symbol of the service God has called us to in every other area of our lives. How God has called us to serve physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, other people. And so what we're doing when we wash other people's feet is we're saying, Lord, I choose to be your servant. So let's break up now. The ladies... Um, are, are down, I think, in the junior room, the men in the, the rooms at the, the, the kindergarten and, and uh, primary rooms. I think we have uh, families in the uh, fellowship hall. And if you just don't want to go up and down the stairs for some reason, uh, we'll have some communion emblems, some foot washing emblems here that you can do just in the front on the left side of the church. So let's break for that now.
the disciples were astonished at what Jesus had just done in washing their feet. And quiet and probably teachable for the first time that day, the disciples watched the next moves of Jesus as he taught them a new way, a new way of thinking about salvation. Uh, the disciples reclined around the table, and Jesus began to pass out the food. Now, we're going to participate, like the disciples did, with what Jesus was doing. This is a practice that we call communion. Um, some people call it the Last Supper. Or there's a couple other names, but uh, it's, it's something that we, we practice as what we call open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church in order to participate. We do ask, though, that you treat these emblems bread and grape juice as um, sacred. These are our memories that we have of Jesus' sacrifice. And we ask that you only participate with this service. If you have said, I choose to accept Jesus as my Savior. So um, with that, I'd like to invite um, Sam and Brandon to pray over these emblems, and then we'll partake. Dear Jesus, dear God and Holy Spirit, we can imagine what Jesus had to go through. And he did that for me and for each one of those that are witnessing this communion, whether in person here physically or on the, in the internet. We thank you, Father, that you made this possible for us to share in these emblems that represent your body. And Lord, as it was broken for our sake, we thank you for that sacrifice. And we ask that you bless the bread that we're going to partake, as it is a symbol of your body. Bless each one that participates. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your sacrifice for us on the cross, for saving us from our sins. We thank you that you gave us the example of how to be a servant leader. We pray that you would help each one of us to follow that example in our spheres of influence. Now we pray that as we partake in this grape juice, and it is a symbol of the blood that you shed for us on the cross, we pray that you would cover our sins and forgive us of our sins. Help us to become more like you in every, everything that we do and say. And please bless everyone who partakes in this service. Amen. There are gluten-free bread. The lighter bread is gluten-free, if that's something that you have a concern for. And while we're um, passing out these emblems, I'd like to encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 25, in, or 26, rather, in your Bibles. That's where we're going to be reading from next as we continue this story. That is a virtue.
they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take disciples still didn't understand the statements that Jesus had just made as he gave them these special emblems and this new service that would be a memorial of what he was about to do. They didn't get it, but remember that they had all kinds of history behind them, centuries of culture and religious teaching that backed their idea of what the Messiah would do. After the meal, they sang a hymn, they followed Jesus to the Mount of Olives, and on the way, Jesus looked at Peter, and then said to all of them in Matthew 26, verse 31, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter quickly retorted, though everyone else falls away, I will never fall away. He still didn't understand what was about to happen. They got to the olive grove, and after an agonizing time of prayer, Jesus was bound by the, the priest's guard and taken away to a, a sham trial. He was condemned to death. And during that trial, Peter, the one who just said, I will never fall away, he says, he, he renounces Jesus. He, he says, I never, I don't know that guy so loudly that Jesus can hear from the podium of the trial. Peter recognizes, catches the eye of Jesus as he says this, and, and he weeps, recognizing that he has fallen away too and flees into hiding. That Friday, Jesus was interviewed by two different Roman leaders. One finally gave the Jews permission that, that they were seeking to carry out the sentence of death. And then Jesus was hung between two thieves. If James and John had only known that this was what it meant to be on the right and left side of Jesus in his kingdom, I wonder if they would have asked for that privilege. As Jesus' blood poured out from his hands and his feet and his head, John, the only disciple that, of the twelve that is said by the Bible to be at the cross, maybe he was thinking about Jesus' statement at that last supper, this is my blood. And he, of course, being the youngest, probably had the most pliable and teachable mind of the group. After comforting words to a repentant thief and an internal struggle that only Jesus could really understand, he finally cried out that afternoon and said, It is finished. A triumphant statement of completion. And then he bowed his head and breathed his last breath. Jesus died that day, but he wasn't killed by the cross or by the Roman spear. Jesus gave his life freely. His body was broken, his blood poured out, and his life was willingly surrendered so that the law that requires my death could be satisfied. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His life in exchange, in exchange for mine and yours. His body was taken off the cross and placed lovingly into a tomb. 
and then the darkness of Sabbath fell on the land. All that night, the disciples cowered in that same upper room that they had eaten the Last Supper with Jesus the night before. They looked at the dirty towel in the corner and the dishes that they had cleared from the table after their meal. They knew that what had just happened, they, they knew what had just happened, but they still didn't fully understand it. John may have brought Jesus' mother Mary and told them what they had seen at the cross. More than likely, they fasted that next day on Sabbath, with none of them able to eat. Their Lord and Master, the Messiah that they had hoped for, the one who had taught them so much truth about, uh, about God, he was defeated and dead. Their hopes of a kingdom were completely flooded with sadness and misery. And if that is all there was to this story, if that's where the story ended, then that's all we'd ever know about this Jesus, this great teacher who died, just like so many others before him and so many others after. Paul tells us that the good news, the gospel story, the plan of salvation hinges on what happened on the morning of the first day of the week. The, the Lord's Supper, this symbol that we just performed and partook in, would mean nothing unless there was a Sunday morning resurrection. Notice what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look in verses 17, 18, and 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, and if Christ... If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What a miserable bunch those disciples were all night and all day Sabbath and all night on the first day of the week. And then very early on the morning of the first day, you remember that the darkness happens before the light in the Bible, right? So the, the darkness of the first day of the week was that night. And then very early in the morning, on that Sunday morning, um, some of the women went to do a proper embalming of Jesus' body. And when they got to the tomb, uh, with all their spices and their stuff, they found that, that Jesus wasn't there. He was risen. They saw angels. They told him that he's no longer dead. He's alive. And, and they ran back to the room where the disciples were mourning, and they told them that they'd seen angels and that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore, and he was alive, and it was way too much for them to process. People back then, they were smart. They knew that people, when they died, didn't come back to life. Right? They had that much intelligence about how body works. When you're dead, you're dead. When you start to rot, you just don't come back from that. It didn't make sense to them. And so John races to the tomb. Jesus, uh, Peter races uh, with him. And, and they, they see there the grave clothes of Jesus folded and set neatly in the burial slab. And the Bible says in John chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, that Peter and John believed. It goes like this. Then the other disciple, that would be John, because Peter was there already. The other disciple, uh, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. That's the whole point of the communion service. It's not simply a death memorial or a burial memorial. It is a resurrection faith. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that statement is key because there is no coming of somebody who's dead. He is alive again or there is no hope. It is a living Lord that comes back, a once dead but now alive again Lord. Now, of course, many disbelieved. When the disciples said Jesus is alive, many disbelieved. It was, after all, only women who had seen Jesus. And at the time, women's testimony didn't count in a court of law and certainly not in the court of public opinion. But in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared first to Peter, or Cephas, and then to all of the 12 disciples, and then to more than 500 of his followers at the same time. And most of them were still alive at that time. It was just about 50 or so AD, so maybe 20 years after Jesus' death. And Paul points to the witnesses. Notice he leaves out the women. He leaves out the women because he knew that that wouldn't be a good evidence. But he says, all these men, they saw Jesus. You can trust the witnesses. Jesus is alive. Josephus, 
and Pliny and many others wrote about messiahs in, the, in Israel. People that claimed to, to be some coming king and they had followings and they had little wars and stuff. And, and inevitably, there would be this powerful leader who would die. And what would they do? Well, they would either disband, most of them did, or they would choose another leader. The Christians didn't choose another leader. This guy died. This great leader died. And yet, no new leader came around. And, and no disbanding happened. Neither seemed to be uh, happening. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, would have been a good person to elevate uh, to that role. He was the leader in Jerusalem for a while, but, but they didn't. They called him James, the brother of Jesus. And he was just the guy in, 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 in Jerusalem. And there was Paul, and there was Peter, and there were so many other leaders, but none of them claimed to be the replacement for Jesus, the leader that they had followed. They all claimed to keep following Jesus, the living Savior, the one who had been raised from the dead and ascended to heaven and is now alive. That's their statement, and that is the promise of the gospel. That's the good news. The gospel message that is that Christ, the Lord of creation, humbled himself to become a human, lived a life of perfect obedience to God's law, then died to fulfill the law in our place, rested in the grave on the Sabbath to remind us that our job is to rest in humble submission to him. And then he rose again so that we would always have a living God to pray to and hope in his soon return. A real being, a, a Lord and Savior who is coming again to take us to the place that he is preparing right now for us. That's the gospel story. Stand together with me. And let's sing a hymn, a hymn about this gospel story, a hymn about resurrection.